If the music didn't stir your heart today, you're dead. I mean, there's something seriously wrong. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be before you today. Let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 5. One of the main purposes of John's gospel is to testify to the fact that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the co-equal second person of the Trinity. In the very first lines of his gospel, John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John the Baptist later testifies to this when he says, when he says that he has seen Jesus and he witnesses that he is the Son of God. Jesus himself claimed God as his Father when he cleansed the temple by driving out the money changers, saying, Take these things away. Do not make my Father's house a house of trade. Jesus referring to himself in his conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus further explains his identity to the woman at the well when he says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And when she says, Messiah will come and will tell us all things, Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. Thus far in our study in John, Jesus has exhibited his power and authority through various miracles and encounters with different individuals. We've seen Jesus turn water into wine at the marriage feast. We've witnessed the the conversion of the religiously skeptical and spiritually thirsty woman of Samaria at the well and all the subsequent Samaritans that believed because of her testimony. And he healed the official's son from a distance without having to actually be there with him, testifying to his omnipotence and omniscience. The miracles, the conversions, and all the direct statements by Jesus and others testify to the fact that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be, the Son of God, co-equal with the Father. And in John chapter 10, verse 30, he directly states, I and the Father are one. And for saying that, verse 31 says that his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. Jesus' ministry stood in sharp contrast to the established religious leaders of his day. Up to this point, to them, Jesus had been an inconvenience, an annoying phenomenon, an irritant. But by the end of today's passage, the Jewish religious leaders are determined to take Jesus out because he was a threat to their control and power over the people. Their agenda and Jesus's agenda were in opposition to one another. And John chapter 5 verse 18, the last verse in our passage today, it says this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The healing of the lame man by the pool on the Sabbath introduces us 
to a theme that is important in the rest of John's gospel. Jesus does his mighty works, his signs, providing all this tangible proof that he was indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. But instead of having faith in him, strenuous opposition is aroused among the national Jewish leaders. The conflict grows and intensifies throughout the remainder of John's gospel. And eventually, as a result, they will kill him. The religious leaders of the Jews were so committed to their religious traditions and their self-righteousness that they failed to see Jesus for who he was, the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. With these broad strokes of introduction in mind, let's read the passage. And it is a lengthy passage, so bear, witness, bear patience with me, please. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that was the Sabbath. So the Jews, the Jewish leaders, said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. We're looking at this idea today of conflicting agendas. And we're going to look at three main ideas in this passage. We're going to look at the condition of the man, the compassion of Jesus, and the conduct of the establishment, the Jewish leadership. But before I jump into the actual message, I feel it's necessary to make some clarifying statements because there are going to be a lot of things in this passage we're not going to address in detail, but I do think it at least necessary to bring them to our attention. First of all, in verse 4, you'll notice that verse 4, although present in the text of the KJV, is not in the, in the text of the ESV or the NSV or other modern translations. Why is this, you ask? Well, John Piper and many others explain 
But the answer is, it is not there in the oldest and best manuscripts. There are thousands of Greek manuscripts or fragments of Greek manuscripts, and the way we have arrived at our amazingly reliable Greek and Hebrew and English translations is that these texts are compared with each other in painstaking and complex ways, which we refer to as textual criticism. So that when some manuscripts have different wording, we can tell almost all the time which is original. And in the few places where we can't make that determination, there is no significant historical or doctrinal issue at stake. So it would seem that at some point in history, somewhere along the way, a copyist made a marginal note of explanation into the actual text. Because verse 7 begs for some, kind of, some type of explanation when it says, the sick man answered, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. So verse 4 in your KJV Bible is likely a marginal note by a copyist attempting to explain verse 7 where the man says he can't get into the pool in time. We don't know if this inserted explanation is right or if the stirring of the water was actually the result of an angelic intervention. What we do know is that Jesus doesn't address the issue of the water stirring. And John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, didn't give any further explanation than what we have. How the pool worked was not essential to the story. What Jesus did is essential to the story. Another quick observation. There were a lot of sick and invalid people around the pool of Bethesda. Why didn't Jesus heal them all? But rather, he goes to this one individual man who had been there trying to get into the water for 38 years and heals him and then leaves all the others lying there and removes himself from the situation. One explanation is that Jesus wasn't there for a healing service. He was there to make a point, and he explains that point to the Pharisees when they question him later. In verse 17, he says, My father is working until now, and I am working. So Jesus' purpose in this situation was making the point with the religious leaders that he was Lord of the Sabbath, he was God in the flesh, the Son of God, and God does good even on the Sabbath. One of the things struck me about this passage as I read it over and over again is that this man that Jesus healed, in my opinion, doesn't show any signs of saving faith. When the Pharisees asked the man, who told you to carry your mat on the Sabbath, he had no idea who Jesus was. You can't put your faith in someone if you don't even know who they are. Later on, Jesus does seek him out and approaches him in the temple and warns them to not sin anymore or else his fate would be much worse than 38 years as an invalid by the pool. So we're not given any definitive answer here if the man ever put his faith in Christ. In fact, he went and tattled to the Jewish leaders who it was, almost like turning Jesus in. So again, I don't think the main thrust of the passage is the salvation of the healed man, although there are definitely gospel implications, and we are going to look at those. With those broad questions behind us, and so very inadequately answered. <laughs> let's go ahead with our main ideas. First of all, let's look at the condition of the man. The scriptures tell us 
that there was a feast of the Jews taking place and that Jesus had gone up to Jerusalem. We assume to observe the feast. But what follows lets us know that there was something more important than the feast for which Jesus had come to Jerusalem. Jesus makes his way to what is called in the scriptures the Pool of Bethesda, a place which has been substantiated by archaeological findings. Verse 3 tells us the kind of people who were there. And this is important, I think, to what we're going to say today. In these, among these colonnades, around these two pools, lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And then the text focuses on this one man in particular when it says one man there who had been an invalid for 38 years. We don't know the cause of this man's pitiful situation, but we know it's been 38 long years of hardship, disappointment, misery, and dependence on others. It is a pitiful picture indeed, as John relates it. But it is far more pitiful when we realize the situation is an appropriate description of the helpless and woefully hopeless condition of the human race. Note how comprehensive of a description it is. Invalids, we might say disabled, that is weak, without strength to help themselves. Then he expands on that description and says that they were blind, lame, paralyzed. This is an apt description of our spiritual condition apart from the grace of God through Christ. In Romans chapter 5, verse 6, Paul describes our spiritual condition this way. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Paul goes on to say, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The people lying around the pool were incapable of doing things for themselves. They were totally reliant on others coming to their aid, even to help them get to the place where they hoped a miracle might take place. And like them, each of us is incapable of doing anything in our own strength that will change our helpless spiritual condition unless Jesus steps in and through the Holy Spirit infuses us with life for all have sinned and come short of God's glory. Ephesians 2, in Ephesians 2, Paul describes it this way, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the condition of all mankind. We all sinned in our father Adam. We are sinners by nature and we are sinners by choice. This is our spiritual condition apart from Christ. And then Paul continues, though. He says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The only contribution that you and I make to our salvation is our sin. Let me say that again. The only contribution that you and I make to our salvation is our sin. And Christ has paid the penalty for all of that. 
I think sometimes we forget this truth. We often think of ourselves not as bad as others. We have a sanitized opinion of ourselves. We fail to see ourselves as we really are before God without Christ, hopeless, completely helpless. We have the opinion of ourselves sometimes that God got a really good deal when he got us. It is hard for us to admit that we are desperately wicked, that we cannot save ourselves, that God has to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That kind of self-righteous pride is going to damn a lot of people to hell, even people sitting in church pews week after week. As respectable religious people, we often lack a real sense of the depth of our sin and the depravity and just how desperate we are and how bad off we are without Christ. Perhaps you're here today uncertain about your relationship with God. Do you see yourself broken? Do you sense your inability to do anything about your spiritual condition? Do you feel helpless and hopeless? Can I plead with you, even as J.D. did last week? Come to Jesus. He died and rose from the dead so you and I might have life, that he might rescue us from our sin and his condemnation. The next thing we want to look at in this passage is the, is the compassion of Jesus. I think it is significant that very often in the gospel accounts, Jesus shows up at places where there are people incapable of getting to him. But he's always willing to come to them. In chapter 5, verse 6, we read, When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said, Do you want to be healed? Those words, when Jesus saw him lying there. Jesus saw this man's misery. Jesus sees our misery and our need. 38 years was a very long time. Lynette, Lynette and I were talking yesterday about that because it's 38 years ago this summer that she had her liver transplant and all the things that have transpired, all the complications. It hasn't been all bad, but there's been a lot of difficulty along the way. 38 years is a long time to deal with something. This man had been invalid, paralyzed, incapable of doing anything for himself for 38 years. And Jesus saw that. And Jesus sees us in our misery as sinners and has compassion. Jesus' compassion is well documented in the scriptures. We don't need to spend a lot of time with this, but in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, seeing the people, it says he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, 14 says, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. And we're told by the writer of Hebrews that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. Jesus feels the pain and misery of sin because he bore it all on the cross for us. It's important to note as we read the gospel accounts that Jesus did not avoid 
broken, needy people. He didn't avoid lepers. He didn't avoid accused adulteresses about to be stoned. He didn't avoid the brokenhearted or the mentally challenged or the beggar, nor the blind or the physically disabled. He didn't avoid people because of their sin. This was the one characteristic of Jesus that angered the Jewish leadership so much, the fact that he would even eat with publicans and sinners. These people weren't coming to the temple, but Jesus was going to them. Rather than hobnobbing with the religious elite, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, and Jesus met people where they were. After graduating from high school and before I came to college, I worked in Detroit, Michigan, roofing houses with a friend that I had met at camp and lived with the family who had taken his, this friend into their home when he didn't have a home of his own. I was 17 years old and hadn't even been saved a year yet. One evening, I was sitting in the chair after a long, hard day, and Judy, the lady of the house, said to me, I'm bored. Let's go soul winning. <laughs> now, I grew up in a town of eight or 10,000 people. Detroit was a lot bigger than eight or 10,000 people, and it wasn't really very safe to be out at night in certain neighborhoods. But we drove to a crowded recreation park. This is 8, 30, 9 o'clock at night. We drove to a crowded recreation park in a minority neighborhood that had several basketball courts that were jammed full of African-American youth and young adults. Judy got out of the car and started heading for the basketball court. And I cautiously followed her. She turned around and said, come on. Judy's favorite verse was Proverbs 28.1. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the godly are as bold as lions. She would quote that verse, then, look, then, roar, then roar like a lion and say, let's go get them. I honestly thought she was a little bit nuts. But it was hard not to admire her boldness. I reluctantly walked over to the courts where she proceeded to walk into the middle of the courts, called out to get everyone's attention, stopping the games, then she announces, Tim has something to, he wants to talk with you about. <laughs> I thought to myself, I'm going to die tonight. <laughs> I somehow managed to spit out a few what I thought were incomprehensible statements about Jesus and the gospel. I got a lot of gestures, some colorful comments, and just about every one of them turned their backs and went back to their basketball games. I was just thankful they didn't shoot me. <laughs> but you know what? Two young teenage guys walked away from that crowd of basketball players, sat down with us, and let us share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. You want some shocking news? The vast majority of lost people are not going to darken the door of our church or any other church. Sure, we'll have an occasional visitor who may be searching for something they don't really even know what. Occasionally, we may have a coworker or a neighbor join us for a service. We live in a time of great religious skepticism, and a lot of that skepticism is well-founded because the church as an institution for the most part is not living out the gospel the way Jesus intended. People don't trust organized religion. 
They're just not going to come to us. Because they're without God. They're dead in their trespasses and sins, just like we were. Uninterested. They live in brokenness and helplessness and spiritual poverty. And for the most part, they see us as religious do-gooders who don't really have any real interest or concern for them. So let me ask you a question. When was the last time you went out of your way and out of your comfort zone to share the gospel with someone? Do you avoid people because of their physical, mental, or spiritual disabilities? Do you neglect people because of their cultural and racial differences? Are you uncomfortable being around people who are below your social standard, or for that matter, above your social standard? Jesus' agenda is very clear in the book of John, as well as the other Gospels. In chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Jesus spoke to his disciples in chapter 4 and said, I have food to eat that you do not know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. In Matthew chapter 4, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus declares, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In Luke 4, while in the synagogue teaching, reading from the scriptures, Jesus reads Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, and says that it was referring to him when it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus said, The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Jesus had an agenda then, and he has an agenda now. And he has passed on that agenda to us. Are you on board with Jesus' agenda? Do the things that matter to Jesus matter to you? I'm asking myself these questions. I'm not just asking you. There are people all around us who need Jesus. There are so many things that captivate our attention and fill our days. I'm afraid that many of us, including myself, are going to come to the end of our lives and realize we spent very little time developing gospel relationships and telling people about Jesus because we have conflicting agendas. We have something else we're living for. Which brings us to the final point, the conduct of the establishment. In John chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, it says, Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. The response of the Jewish religious leaders is disturbing. Here's a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. And Jesus heals him. They see him walking around with his mat under his arm, and instead of rejoicing in this wonderful miracle that had been done for him, all they could think about were their add-on Sabbath rules based on their traditions. A famous preacher once said, 
And that famous preacher is Drew Conley. <laughs> I crossed the line of religious authority when adherence to religious rules or established tradition matters more to me than the clear manifestation of God's power and love. They had the proof of who Jesus was walking right in front of them, and all they could think about were their Sabbath rules that they had added on to what God intended. It goes without saying that Jesus' healing of this lame man was not against God's intended purpose for the Sabbath, or else he wouldn't have done it. Jesus was not a lawbreaker. Jesus had declared himself as Lord of the Sabbath, and as Lord of the Sabbath, he did not sin against its intended purposes. But he intentionally, on purpose, infringed upon the man-made regulations with which the Pharisee had burdened the people. Man-oriented religion seeks to control people by enslaving their conscience to rules and the, and the traditions of men, while gospel-oriented, Christ-centered religion exposes our self-righteousness and frees us to walk under the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. The religious leaders had a very different agenda than Jesus. It was to keep control of the people. It was to have their position of power and their position of prestige. And because of their agenda, they couldn't even see the Messiah right in front of them. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 23, delivers a scathing rebuke to them. We won't read the whole passage, but we'll just point out some things. He calls them to the scribes and Pharisees, and he says they preach, but they do not practice. They, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are, willing to move them with, are, are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They love the place of honor and best seats in the synagogue. They shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. They neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. They clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. They outwardly appear righteous to others, but within they were full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They were so consumed with promoting themselves and increasing their power and control over the people that they didn't even recognize God when he showed up. I'm very grateful that years ago as a church, we decided that we were going to teach life by the book and not by the mandates of the secular culture nor by the religious traditions of our Christian subculture. But this is something we must keep a constant vigilance about because it's so easy to get wrapped up in our own religious agendas and no longer be aligned with Jesus' agenda. So I ask you, what about you and me? As we live and move through life, what is our agenda? What is important to you? What is important to me? Does your agenda for your life align with Jesus' agenda? Or are the two in conflict with one another? Let's pray. Father, forgive us. We love so many other things more than we love you. There's so many things that take our time, require our 
energy. But they're around us, Lord. There are lost souls all around us. And your purpose when you came was to seek and to save that which was lost. And you have passed that baton on to us to share the truth of your gospel so that others might come to know you. Help us to get on board. Amen.